Hello and welcome to the Hot Dish Comfort Food for Rural America. I'm Heidi Heitkamp. I am the host with my brother, Joel, where we talk about all things rural, maybe from a perspective you haven't always heard. A lot of people think we don't know anything. The one thing we can say is we know ag. It's where we grew up, Heidi, and it's one thing we know from top to bottom. And so uh, I'm really anxious to have the conversation that we're about to have. Absolutely. And if you think rural America can move forward without recognizing the demographic changes in this country and the need to put a face on agriculture that is not kind of the American Gothic, but a face that is just as rich as the soil that we farm, um, you're wrong. We've got to tell the story and we've got to be more inclusive. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Our guest is Dr. Tammy Gray Steele. She hails from the great state of Oklahoma. She's a fourth generation farmer herself. And she did a stint in New York City where she got her law degree at uh, NYU and uh, worked on Wall Street of all places. And now she's back home in Oklahoma. And she created the National Women in Agriculture Association in 2008. Dr. Gray Steele, thank you so much for joining us. Um, of course, everybody's curious, curious about how some New York uh, uh, Wall Street big wig ended up coming home or back to Oklahoma and work in agriculture. Can you tell us a little bit of that story? It was easy to come back home from New York City. Um, I met my sweetheart, my husband, of 27 years, almost 28. So to move back to home and be able to be with my family, uh, my my mother, father, and siblings, and you know, just all of my family that are here in Oklahoma. So when you decided to begin National Women in Agriculture Association, what made you decide to do it? Well, coming, as you said, is from, I'm a, from a farm background. My family currently still operates from the 40 acres and a mule that was awarded. Well, the mule's no longer with us, but we still run beef cattle. My uncle still run beef cattle on the initial 40 acres. But in my community, I'm from a very small rural community in Oklahoma. And going back home and visiting and just seeing the actual community farmers that were there, predominantly minority women farmers, that were not even recognized as farmers and still very little to this date. Um, they are not really on uh, at the rector scale or the spectrum, if you will, with the USDA as they should. So I formed the organization in an effort to help minority women who had land, but was not being prosperous at all. Either they were widows or they had the land that was uh, actually, they received through inheritance and didn't know what to do with. There are very few grants that provide assistance to individual farmers. And that's the struggle that I see so much or and hear from so many farmers, especially women farmers, no matter what color they are, a minority, being a female, I consider us all minorities when it comes to that, especially in the agriculture industry. But I, I see them um, very, very in you know, dying straight situations where they have no resources to do what they desire to do in agriculture. And so we went in and I say we, myself and a couple of business partners, they actually went in and started farming, um, helping me farm grants, get many grants for these women farmers. 
you represent a really significant part of what could be the future of American agriculture. So if you could tell me what your top three demands are or, or concerns are with this next farm bill, that would be really helpful. Well, that would be easy. <laughs> Equity, inclusion, and diversification across the board. And I should say, maybe it's four, sustainability. My research shows since 1941, through the Smith-Lieber Act, there has been a $300 million rollout that comes through that act, and very few minority farmers or groups receive any of that funding. And we just want to become a pilot program. We have research that we can become a pilot program to 4-H and FFA for at youth, which will provide all children equal opportunities in the sustainable industry of agriculture. Well, one of my great joys is I still get a chance to visit with FFA chapters. And let me tell you, more women, more minorities, there's a lot of interest. And, and so if we're going to grow agriculture, if we're going to keep people in agriculture, you're, you're on the right track. It's got to be more inclusive. It's got to be more diverse because that's where the American population is, is headed. We definitely need the advocacy as well as the support and making sure because 4-H and FFA are phenomenal, phenomenal groups. And we just want to model and, you know, make sure our children were able to, they could relate to who we are and want to be involved. You know, this is why I get upset when people are making ag policy who don't remember how American agriculture was built. It was built on the cream can. Mom got up, she milked the cow, she raised the chickens and sold eggs in town. She was planting the cucumbers and the tomatoes. She's always been part of that farm. She has always been a major breadwinner in that farm. And, you know, this is not just a minority struggle. This is a struggle to get women in agriculture recognized. And so I'm with you. We're going to do everything we can to sound the alarm and tell your story and make sure that you have a seat at that table. And, and I think you got a pretty good shot at it. Thank you so very much. I'm just grateful for the opportunity that you all would hear us and, of course, help us any way you can. Because, again, we call ourselves the solution to several issues, poverty issues out there. We're the solution to food desert issues, to economic empowerment. We're going to bring jobs. And then, most importantly, and dear to my heart, we are saving and educating children from being killed or either incarcerated really appreciate you bringing very, very important issues to the forefront. Thank you so very much. I'm just grateful for the opportunity. You know, Joel, I was recently driving through California, through the valley, and I saw strawberries and I saw artichokes and I thought, man, this is really, really important work that they do here, but so different than the rows of corn and the rows of soybeans. And if we're going to survive in agriculture, we need to understand not just these big commodity crops, but all the diversity that is agriculture. And all I wanted to do was to get out and take a look at how they were irrigating and, you know, how they burned up the strawberries. But then I realized, you know, someone's got to pick those strawberries. Somebody's going to be doing the backbending work that it takes to bring that produce to market. 
Well, and we had a grandpa and grandma Berg, right? Clarence and Mildred knew cheap labor when they found it. All they had to do was feed us, and mom and dad were anxious to get rid of us because they had a whole house full of 900 square foot Sears home with what, 10, 20 kids in it at a time? <laughs> so anyway, heavy. you might have you picked cucumbers. I didn't pick cucumbers. You might have thrown cucumbers at your cousin. <laughs> I didn't do that. What I will tell you is this, when you went out there, you knew you were going to have to work. And it taught us something, Heidi. It taught us the value of work. It taught us how important ag production was and how important family was. And it also taught us how quickly you can want to get away from your grandparents' house at times. <laughs> you know, what Joel's talking about is my grandfather decided that a good way to make cash crop, besides his usual selling sweet corn and potatoes and cream and, you know, trying to kind of get a few extra bucks to augment the social security, he'd plant five acres of cucumbers because he had that many grandchildren that could pick them. And so he could get free labor and make a lot of money on uh, selling pickles. So let me tell you, the probably the best education I've ever received in my life, and to this day it stays with me, is how back breaking that work is, how tough that work is. And so when people talk about immigrant workers and people working the field and they say it despairingly, I want to say, get out there and pick five acres of strawberries. And when you come back, you tell me about how these people are freeloaders and don't want to work. Our next guest is Mike Espy. He's the former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture in the Clinton administration, and I'm proud to say a board member of One Country Project. When he was Secretary of Agriculture, things were a little different back then, but I know his heart still is in rural America. Welcome back, Mike. It's great to talk to you. I want to talk a little bit about the challenges of rural America as it relates to SNAP. You know, people always think about SNAP as that that program that we balance against the farm bill, but people don't realize that we have a lot of people who rely on that program in rural America because our incomes aren't what they are in urban America. Yes, Heidi. Hello. How are you? It's good to be with you again, and I'm so proud to be a board member of One Country Project. So let's talk about the largest, the best, the most effective entire hunger program in the United States in its history, and the fact that uh, there are certain risks now inherent to the continuation of that program on two fronts. One is the negotiation of the debt ceiling, where Kevin McCarthy and his acolytes and cohorts have a target on the back of SNAP. They've got $4.5 trillion dollars in cuts, and a lot of them would come out of the SNAP program, and the other is the Farm Bill, which is right now under discussion in D.C., and uh, the largest part of the Farm Bill spending is on nutrition. I believe it's about 76% of all the spending in the Farm Bill is a triple in some way or another to nutrition and therefore to SNAP. So there are a lot of risks to this program right now, and I just... Whatever I can do as a former Secretary of Agriculture or a former member of Congress who, with Mickey Leland in the 1980s, formed the Select Committee on Hunger, where we went out and talked about tremendous problems of food insufficiency in America. That program is so vital. It's necessary. It should not be cut in a draconian way. 
the work requirements should uh, not have the restrictions that McCarthy wants to put on them because this program is so very necessary. 41 million Americans, you don't need this particular program. In rural America, which is the focus of OCP, Heidi, we know that uh, rural America is hunger prone and uh, so many have trouble making ends meet. You pay your rent, you buy your medicine, and somewhere or another you have to buy food. So food insecurity in rural America is a real problem. In fact, as you know, Heidi, if you look at all the counties that make up the United States, about 63% of all the counties are rural. And if you look at all the rural counties, about 87% of the rural counties are food insecure. So we need to do whatever we can to lobby, cajole, support, continuation of this SNAP program as they begin to look at the debt ceiling negotiations and as they begin to review the farm bill. So, Mike, you know, I'm I'm sitting in the Matter VFW hall and I got 10 people around me and they're using different words than SNAP. And all they're doing is whining and they're saying people are lazy and they're talking about how there should be all these requirements and they should be separated from the farm bill. We shouldn't have snap in the farm bill. And there was an old guy there, uh, a guy that was around when uh, things weren't as good on the farm. And he looked at these young guys and he said, you're idiots. You don't get it. This is a marriage. This is a marriage that's been there for a long time. And if we're going to go around telling people that we're about feeding the world, then by God, why are we afraid to feed the world, even those with, with less than us? The problem is he was one of 10. How do we get the other nine to realize that for them to get the help, and actually some neighbors pretty close to them uh, are in need of this, how do we get those other nine to basically wake up and realize what this does for them and the farm bill? What a great question. And I don't mind using the other names of ZAP. It's, uh, it's food stamps. You know, the, the food stamp bill, I have no problem you know, suggesting that that's the real name and purpose of it. But the SNAP program or the food stamp program has many other benefits. First of all, it supports the commodity farmers. You know, in fact, when I was in Congress, when Heidi was in the U.S. Senate, there was always a trade-off between those who uh, wanted to continue the commodity programs, and they were usually the Republicans, you know, and those urban Democrats would always want to continue the so-called food stamp program. So for those guys sitting at the bars worried about lazy people, I'd first say that, number one, the food stamp or the SNAP program has work-related requirements. Uh, they all do. And those work-related requirements are very likely going to be continued. So those that believe that lazy people only qualify for this have to know that their work requirements in order to receive the SNAP benefits, number one. Number two, we want the grocery stores and uh, the Walmarts and the other places that are outlets for food staff to remain in these rural communities because these are the lifelines of these rural communities. And number three, if you don't eat, then there's no way to support the farmers. So at least three reasons. Mike, you were there. I mean, you were in the trenches trying to get a farm bill passed, making sure that this marriage happens, that everybody gets together making sure that people in the rural area that might be taking advantage of, of SNAP don't have to admit that they were taking advantage of SNAP and, and really didn't have to admit that the subsidy that ag gets far outweighs what SNAP itself gets, whether it's through 
federal crop insurance, whether it's through we had a bad crop, so we're going to send some money your way, all of that. But how do we make sure that farming succeeds, but yet at the same time, at, at a time that we're sitting here talking about a balanced budget, at a time that we're in a budget debate, how do we make sure that this isn't a drag on that budget, or at least we're honest about it, Mike? Well, we want to be honest about it. So the first thing we have to understand is that in this country, our agricultural sector is very, very productive, extreme productive. We have great technology. We have our great uh, inputs, fertilizers and seeds and so forth. And so two thirds of what our farmers grow must be sold internationally. It must be. And then when you come to the one third domestic outlet for farm commodities, these are the type of commodities that are processed, are developed, and sold in the grocery stores, right? And so we need consumers to buy those commodities that are grown and supported by those farmers. And so along the food value chain, you can't omit the low-income consumers that may not have the wherewithal independently to support themselves. So just like you have median-income purchasers and wealthy purchasers, you have to have the uh, allowance for low-income purchasers to get the food they need, and they buy it just like anyone else does, but it's federally subsidized. And so that goes to support the overall goals of supporting farm income. I think what's interesting is if you talk to the local, the rural grocery stores, you're going to get a different story about how vital this program is for so many rural farm families. We know the income in rural America is less you know, so when farmers sit around and talk about this, um, you know, I get it. But let me tell you, so many of the people who are working in the nursing home in their rural communities, who are the pastors and even the janitors at the school, the tellers at the bank, they aren't paid well enough to feed their families and they're working. And you take the veterans, you take the seniors that are getting some food assistance. And, you know, I think if you really showed them who is getting food assistance, I think that changes. They've been led to believe that this that's all full of graph. We know that the food assistance program of all of the uh, assistance programs has the least amount of fraud in any of these programs. That's right, Heidi. It, it's, it's not like they're receiving a million dollars a month food assistance. No, the average uh, benefit per SNAP recipient is $127 per month, 127 per month. So I think you have to understand that in context. Nobody's getting rich, but that $127 per month allows them to be more food secure. They'll go to the Walmart. They'll go to the, to the grocery store. They'll go and buy commodities produced by the farmers. By them going to that store, they are supporting the economic livelihood of that rural community. Because if they weren't there, they might have reason to leave. And here, there's another reason the rural communities are becoming less and less populated. So in answer to your question, rural communities are food insecure. We can't allow people to die of starvation here in the United States. The food pantries, the churches can't do it all. And so I think it's a function of U.S. government to at least provide a modicum of food support to these rural communities it benefits these communities economically. It allows these individuals, hopefully, to make better and more nutritious food choices. 
It leads, hopefully, to healthier livelihoods, reducing diabetes and obesity. And, uh, and it's just, and, and all in all, it supports the farmers because they're eating what the farmers grow. It's only $127 per month is the average SNAP benefit. So, you know, Mike, in a country as wealthy as this country, no person should go hungry. And maybe we shouldn't be so tough on those folks who need a little help in food security. We're a large nation, we're a prosperous nation, and hopefully we could abide by the notion of being a moral nation. So we have, of all of our population, 350 million, we have 41 million who are in very low income situations and they're food insecure. They open the refrigerator, you know, every day and there's very little to feed their families. And so uh, two thirds of those 41 million have children in the house. And so they just need support. They need help. It's only $127 a month. You know, of all the other supports we give to production, agriculture, and tax breaks and building stadiums, you know, to watch great basketball, football games, you know, in order to provide a little substance, substance for someone to feed their family, something I think we ought to do in America. Thank you so much. And we know our uh, brothers and sisters in faith who uh, worked so hard with me when I was there to make sure that we were not uh, leaving any families behind. They'll be there in this fight, too. So thanks so much, Mike. You have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You know, coming up, you need to know our production team took a field trip to Laytonsville, Maryland, where one farmer is making a connection. That's right, a connection to home for African immigrants and the wider community. So this is, oh, wow, the okra is already coming out. This is amazing. My name is Tanya Spandler. Uh, originally born in Zimbabwe, came here in 96 with my husband and two toddlers. I'd always, always had this yearning for naturally grown food because that's what I was used to in Zimbabwe. So I got a community garden plot in Germantown uh, since 2010. And once I started growing stuff, tomatoes, cucumbers, whatever it was, and shared with friends and family. They enjoyed uh, the, uh, the taste of the uh, produce. Well, I decided, I said, well, that's a good business opportunity if people keep telling me that they like the taste of the uh, produce. I've had the farm for about seven years now. And the name of the farm is Passion to Seed Gardening. I've been focusing on the corn focusing on the culturally appropriate produce, which includes pumpkin leaves, okra, these um, cow peas. Those are some of the um, uh, vegetables that we grew up eating in Zimbabwe or any other African country. This corn wasn't looking like this, but because the rains, thankfully the rains came, came down, now it's, it looks much better. This is the kind of corn that is grown in Zimbabwe? Yes, it's not sweet. It's in the middle between sweet corn. And, you know the uh, Mexican corn with the thick kernels? Yeah, it's more or less. The kernels are not as big as the Mexican one, but in terms of taste, that's how it, that's how it tastes. 
my mom, she's here, she's working 82 years old. She's, she's gardening right now with the, the gentleman who's helping us today. That's my mom, Selena. They are interviewing me about the farm. So I was telling them that I got the, uh, the exposure from you and dad when growing up. And I think that has helped me come around to where I am today. Okay. That's why I am helping you. <laughs> For me, every year, it's like a learning experience. Last year, I was putting in like two seeds in a, in a hole. And then I guess I didn't leave enough space because this type of corn needs a lot of uh, sunlight and fresh air going through. So the lines were too tight and two pieces of uh, corn in one hole, that didn't help. And so my produce, as much as I wanted to have much, but I came out with almost nothing. Yeah, so I learned a lesson, but she had told me that you don't need to put two pieces of corn in, in, a, in a hole. And uh, yes, I guess that's why they say you have to listen to your mother. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was one of the uh, experiences I had last year. And uh, well, I'm lucky that she's here, uh, she's giving direction. come, she's going to yield more grain here. Yeah. Greater than last year. Yeah, definitely. It is a lot of uh, a lot of work. Sometimes when I look at the landscape and I say, how am I gonna get to the end of the field doing this? Walking into the greenhouse. Yeah, the greenhouse is a little bit uh, out of work because of uh, because of all the weeds coming up. I'm trying hard to catch up, but uh, these are tomatoes and. Uh, I was so happy when I saw this one. <laughs> it has a funny shape, but uh, yeah, they are thriving in here. Um, so what will an ugly tomato like that taste like when you, when you eat it? Oh, it tastes delicious. Washington, D.C. is not too far away. Do you think about policymakers and what you wish they knew about small farms? Oh, definitely, yes. Being an uh, immigrant black uh, farmer and female, for that matter, yeah, there, is a, there are a lot of hurdles that you have to go through in acquiring land access, availability of capital to buy equipment. You know, just navigating through the processes of uh, applying for grants and all that stuff it makes it very hard. Thank God that we live in this county, Montgomery County. I keep emphasizing that because I think the local and state officials uh, need to know the appreciation, but there's still much that can be done in terms of uh, racial equity and justice in the way loans are dispersed uh, to people of color. Describe what, what it is we're seeing right now. What we're seeing is lush green, uh, quietness, serene. You forget about everything and just, you know, absorb the uh, sounds of nature. 
just looking at the green for me is very therapeutic. It's a place just to be still and be in the moment and you know enjoy what you're doing. It's so peaceful out here, very peaceful. And I think I belong here. It's a calling. Tanya's farm is passiontoseedgardening.net and our team swears by her tomatoes. Thanks for joining us on The Hot Dish. For more information about the One Country Project, go to onecountryproject.com. See you in two weeks.